Would you see Grace I'm... says that you have a big secret. What is it? second episode of Relative Digressions. I'm Renna. I'm Felicia. And we are going to today be discussing Doctor Who the movie or the Doctor Who the TV movie? What's the official title? Um, it's usually referred to as the TVM for TV movie. It's sometimes called The Enemy Within, which is a title that the producer Philip Segal gave it at a convention once. So, uh, yeah, the TV movie or The Enemy Within. It's never really called Doctor Who the movie by fans. Right, okay. So I could start by giving you my thoughts. Well, before we talk about the movie directly, I was going to like briefly talk about the wilderness years in general, because we're both children of the wilderness years. Yeah, that sounds cool. When were you born? Well, 88, so technically I was born in the McCoy era, but he was gone sure. before I had a theory of mind. I wouldn't, indeed. Um, I'm still working on mine. No, so <laughs> I'm in, uh, I was born in 1992. I got into Who, actually via the, which I think you said is not uncommon, via the Eighth Doctor books. The BBC novels, yeah. Actually, two very late ones on the series, which made very, very, little, very little sense to me because they were very canon dense. Yeah, they're very archy. There was a period of time when 100 Greatest X was like a thing, I think in the mid noughties. Uh, so you'd have the 100 Greatest Comedy Sketches and all yeah, something yeah. like that. And I think from that kind of show, I picked up a passive knowledge of Doctor Who. Not convinced I knew what a Dalek was, but I might have done. That's really interesting because I think I knew what a Dalek was before I knew what Doctor Who was. Well, I might have done, but it's it's all, you know, it's in, buried in the past now. I don't know if I had any conception of what the TARDIS looked like. Certainly, my mental picture of a TARDIS is actually probably the ninth, tenth Doctor's TARDIS, because that's the one I was first exposed to visually. Uh, you showed me the other day <laughs> Doctor in Distress, <laughs> which I can only describe as a thing which apparently happened. And I, I was tweeting actually about it because I said, um, and the weird thing is we're about seven years until we are the same length of time from the beginning of New Who as Doctor in Distress was from the original first Doctor episode. And I think it's very possible. <laughs> I, I am optimistic, but, you know, I think it's very possible the series will be tired and in need of killing for a bit in seven years. And we have to absolutely prevent Doctor in Distress from occurring again. <laughs> Ian Levine must be stopped. It has to be stopped because n- we can't let something that bad happen again. Voluntarily, you also watched Dimensions in Time. Yeah, no, I did. That was much more enjoyable. I think Dimensions in Time is great. Unambiguously good. I mean, it's bad. Like, objectively, as Doctor Who, it is bad Doctor Who. And indeed, it's not so. But it's not trying to tell a story, right? Yeah. And actually, I thought that was much more indicative of how normal people probably felt about Doctor Who at the time. There's a sort of level of saccharine emotion in Doctor in Distress, but that's clearly not how people actually felt about Do- the wider public felt about Doctor Who. I mean, I feel like if you're the wider public, Doctor in Distress 
tells you very accurately what late 80s Doctor Who fandom is like, but not in a way where you want that thing to be given an ounce more life than it has had already. Yeah, no, precisely. Um, yeah, I definitely didn't watch Doctor in Distress. I'm like, these people are good and they must continue. Um, but the narration of the time is fun. It's fun because you see all the Doctors who are still alive and you sort of see, I actually don't know all the companions that show up, but they're clearly their most iconic ones. There's some very surface level plot. You get the Rani. You get the Rani. That's actually the first Rani thing I've seen. And, you know, it might be the last and what we do on this on this podcast so yeah that uh, and i feel like it's a representative thing i think it's a better rani story than time and the rani right the funny thing about dungeon in time is that as a multi-doctor plot it's not terrible if you actually made it a plot and not a series of like random vignettes which also inexplicably are in eastenders yeah so this is the thing right as somebody who knows doctor who very very well and nothing about eastenders it's just a Doctor Who episode because I don't go, oh, those are the EastEnders characters. Right, exactly. And it's a bad Doctor Who episode because you're missing the other half. But I think it's great for that. You know, EastEnders is as much a caricature as the 80s Doctor Who, right? Um, it's quite a, fun, quite a fun concept. I like the time warping thing they're doing. They're, they're leaping back in time a certain number of years. You have this random helicopter bit. Uh, it's just nice because you you, sort of, you just get this real sense of how Doctor Who was kind of viewed. What year is this? Oh, don't you start. There's enough oddballs around here as it is. Madam, what year is this? 2013! Uh, and you also told me about the dark dimension. Yes. Which is basically what Dimensions in Time became, or rather, like, it, w- dimension, Dark Dimension didn't happen. Yeah, Dimensions in Time stepped into the breach left by the Dark Dimension. Right, there was kind of an, enough energy for something to occur, but everyone agreed it shouldn't be this thing. Uh, it's interesting, because it, like, I mean, it sounds like there were a number of problems with it, which were not related, <laughs> but, like, were different. One, which was it was being produced by people who didn't know how to produce television shows. Yeah. But also, the script was, like, some wanky fanboy dark 90s shit so it was written by adrian rigglesford and adrian rigglesford is a problematic writer for a number of reasons both in terms of creatively he was writing this thing that was the most fan indulgent and simultaneously oh we've got to go darker than we've ever been before and then just as a person he stole a load of photos from a press archive and then he faked a final interview with Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, and I feel like this is all very important to understand the context of where this is all happening. Well, so what's really important in terms of the dark dimension and understanding the movie is that prior to the movie taking the form it had, and this is interesting because we'll talk about the way the movie is really married somewhat unhealthily to continuity. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said there. But in an earlier iteration, it was a full reboot. Um, and you're going to have this weird thing with, like, Barusa was a mentor figure, and there was a Time Lord called Ulysses who lived in the control column of the TARDIS, and the Cybermen were space-travelling scavengers looking for technology to graft into themselves to keep themselves alive. And it was a full reboot. Wow. It's sort of fascinating that... Uh, who, uh, who Ulysses might have been his father, according to the... Uh, yes. Which we could say some stuff about the Doctor's parentage that applies to this. Uh, uh, we will. Dub. We will. <laughs> we will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How could we not? I'm her f***ing. Let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. 
so when you look at this stuff, there's, there's something called the Leakley Bible, which is this big story Bible for the planned reboot. And when you read that, bits of it sound very similar to the sort of preliminary planning for the Dark Dimension. Who's Leakley, Solo? Um, John Leakley, who was one of the guys important in this potential reboot. The Leakley Bible was his sort of plot Bible of the reboot, yeah. So there's this common thread, which is about what? You've got this, like, this common thread of, let's reinvent the show, and we're going to reinvent the Cybermen, and we're going to reinvent this, and we're going to reinvent that, and it'll be darker, and it'll have a different tone. And, so, and in both cases, it got supplanted by something utterly wedded to continuity. Shall we start talking about the actual movie? Yeah. Uh, so first thought, absolutely adore the TARDIS design. It's great. I just, I, it's just, it's just obviously amazing. Um, I love, and this is really something that you can only do with a movie, although they could do some modern age. I love that it's a proper set and a series of sets. You know, there's a series of rooms. I mean, I know it's a thing that the, the old show did and the new show really hasn't that much, but I love the sense of it being a, even in the console room, you've got the console other space his little sitting area which is in the same space but are not the same area i didn't actually realize until the second time that i watched or maybe even the third time i watched it that that sitting room is actually just part of the console area because it feels so distinct yes well but that's the kind of that's the that's the thing that's really interesting to me right which is not something i've seen because all the show all the designs i think we've had so far in new who have been quite console focused and then everything else is kind of around it the only comparable thing is matt smith's one which had that kind of multi-leveled affair but even then yeah i quite like that one actually no yeah which i didn't mind i i I like them all i'm I'm right in saying that the this the movie was the first time we'd radically seen a different console room for the main console room um there is uh, i will i'll send you a picture of this because you, you'll go hang on hang on sorry why why is that not the set that they stuck with permanently in the tom baker era for a while he had to use the secondary console room no, so that's what that's why i said the primary one because i'm aware he had, had the secondary console room and when you see the set for the secondary console room it's amazing and you're like if you could design tardis rooms like this why do you just keep going back to the blank gray nothingness i have got it yeah it's just it's just lovely isn't it yeah and then and then they just go back to gray and beige it's gray and beige yeah which is weird and then they stick with it for a while and, and i think it's just a mistake it's quite funny because of course the new show basically since they made an adventure in space and time and therefore they built the bloody set uh has had classic tardis so i'm more exposed to it now or at least something looks a bit like it uh, so i love the console room oh the candles the gothic architecture the big old eye of harmony which is still not sure what that means in terms of continuity let's just forget about that but the, that room is lovely i love the console the the console's design is really inventive. You see a lot of stuff which I feel like must have echoed into stuff they did later with that kind of like random bits and pieces and stuff on the console. Um, it's got a real character to it. It's very cool. There's a weird thing that says the Humanic Era or something, which is quite funny. Apparently, it cost a million dollars to build. That actually doesn't surprise me. Clearly, a big, clearly a big quite a budget was spent it's there. Huge. It's huge. It's a huge, lovely set. And looking at a behind-the-scenes photo of it here, that's a bit more lit up than you see it on screen. It is an enormous space, and I think that's, that's delightful. Yeah, just a massive space. Oh, beautiful. And I love the kind of industrial, like the girders look of the columns on the sides of the pillar. You know, it's just it's a nice fusion of looks. You've got these lovely, the lovely carpet floor. Oh. I think 
that the TARDIS set does something that they are trying to do with the whole film, and it succeeds in the TARDIS set perfectly, whereas throughout the rest of the film it doesn't quite carry off, which is this attempt to do a kind of gothic expressionism. Yeah, which you see in his clothes. It matches his clothes, or rather the, the, clothes, he, the clothes he steals the clothes he steal. from the hospital, which, which he makes a habit of doing. Oh, indeed, because he does it as the 11th. Well, so in the movie, he's calling back to the John Pertwee era, where the John Pertwee doctor steals his clothes from a, cost- from a hospital. And then in the Matt Smith era, Matt Smith also steals his clothes from the hospital. That actually brings me on to the next thing I want to talk about, if that's okay, which is the regeneration and the and his death. It's an incredibly traumatic death. Before we talk about the specifics, can we just talk about what a strange and bad choice it is to start with Sylvester McCoy. Yeah, it is very odd. In a world where everyone knows who the Doctor is, it makes sense. But given that is not who this movie was made for, it is inexplicable. So you're in this context where even in the UK, the show hasn't been on air since seven years, six years ago, seven years ago. And even the people in the UK who remember who Doctor Who fondly don't think of Sylvester McCoy as the Doctor anyway, by and large. And then you remember that this is an American production intended to launch the show for Americans who've never seen Doctor Who. And how did they go from, let's do a complete reboot and rewrite all of continuity to, we've got to start it with Sylvester McCoy regenerating? So actually, you know what? I think the regeneration is perfectly defensible. What I would do, however is start the movie in the alleyway where he stumbles out and gets shot. Because the weird, the thing that's really weird to me, the thing that's, that makes it hard, is that he's clearly an established, stable character, and then he dies. Whereas if you start it with the genuine mystery of guys in an alleyway, gets taken to hospital, horrible traumatic death, if you downplay the idea that he's the main character... So you lose a lot of the intro, basically. You, you sort of mess hmm. around. And actually, it looks like it's focusing on Grace. Because actually, this is one of the mistakes it makes. It doesn't do the thing that Rose does, which is to do everything from Rose's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, if you imagine it's followed Grace up to the hospital. Yeah, I need. you don't even need the alleyway for him, actually. If you have yeah. him as a trauma patient who's brought in you could do some flashbacks if you need to fill in some bit to the story but you follow grace you know you could do so much stuff establish her character a bit more show her terrible boyfriend you, you know you you just you could just pull a rose so easily yeah then yeah. she loses the guy on the operating table because there's this whole theme about bringing people back from the dead and how, how, you know you would really struggle to do the film without it and then, uh, and then he regenerates, and, and you obviously have you heard you have Sylvester McCoy for that, but actually it's not only about him being Sylvester McCoy. Isn't it? I love Sylvester McCoy's accent; it's just so lovely. Oh, right. as a, as a fan, I love that little bit of Sylvester McCoy at the start. Right, exactly. But it doesn't make it for a good but, movie. But as as a writer, I'm like, what are you doing? Right, and then almost there's more mystery. Oh, he's got two hearts. What does that mean? You just, but it's just bizarre because they start by going. Hi, I'm the Doctor. Yes. When he then has the scene, which is, like, I don't think there's any more of an example of the weird attempts to do gothic expressionism that don't quite sit right, than when Paul McGann staggers into a room of the hospital where the windows are all blown in, there's... There's water pouring from the ceiling and there's just a wall of mirrors covered in children's dolls. 
why is it? It's like he's like, why does this buffalo have a haunted wing? <laughs> like, 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 like what you've done is, is is it's literally staggered from hospital brackets normal to hospital brackets very haunted. Why do you have and this? Then he, he collapses and he screams out, "Who am I? <laughs> Who am?" I? But the line delivery is so strange. <laughs> the delivery is very odd. But rather than us as the audience being like, "Who is this man? What is this?" We're like, "Well, we know who he is. He's apparently a guy who listens to records and eats jelly babies in a sitting room." Right, and the, the jelly baby thing is just utterly weird because it's it's just there's a lot of checkboxing of right, right. what is Doctor Who, right? Precisely. It, it's actually really interesting because I think in many ways Russell T. Davis must have been very aware of the movie. Clearly he's very aware of the movie. But it is a, it is a almost a blow-by-blow, blow, here's how not to launch Doctor Who again. And yet there are some aspects which he takes wholesale in rows. I mean, notably, when Chang Li enters the TARDIS, he walks in, walks out, walks all the way around the outside and walks back in. And Russell T. Davis does that exact shot in Rose. Yes, he does. That's true. Although one thing that really annoys me is when they open the doors of the TARDIS, you can't see into the real world. Yeah, it's always annoying. And the key is a weird design. Why why not make it out? Well, so that key is from a Tom Baker era story. Oh, fascinating. So it's a callback, right. Um, Because I like that they just use an actual Yale lock on the thing rather than Yale lock but it turns up and actually it's a space key I, I actually like the joke where he goes to put the key in and the Yale lock cover is just like a fake thing that slid over the top I thought that's I actually <laughs> found that quite funny I don't know I, I thought it was a bit clever clever for me but yeah so the expressionism is odd it never quite gets all the way to just going like okay let's just do a full on surreal gothic fairy tale and it really wants to no absolutely and you can see what it would be like at times and it would be quite good there's that shot at the end when grace is strapping him into the clockwork orange kind of device right yes and there's a bleary shot from the doctor's pov like through the spiked headwear thing to grace's like blacked out possessed eyes that's very like gothic haunted creepy it's funny there's just so many elements of some really interesting movies up here do you know what movie this reminds me of the most in terms of its cinematography and lighting hmm Casper the Friendly Ghost. Ha! Like, if you look at the way Casper the Friendly Ghost is shot, which, incidentally, around the same time... I saw it in the cinema. Yeah, you, you would have been about that age. But yeah, it has a sort of gothic thing to it as well. That's interesting, because by far and away, and it's an intentional homage... The, the one that springs to my mind is the Terminator. Terminator 2 specifically. Yeah, I mean, so clearly the the Master is kind of a, a full-on Terminator reference. Yeah. To the extent that it almost just feels ripped off. The, the, the Master inexplicably has a dramatic costume change. Which, <laughs> that, that's which, really, like... Which, which is just... It literally just doesn't make any sense. And, and they draw attention to it not making sense. But not in a funny way. They're just like, think you've just changed costume. And he's like, yes! I, I always dress for the, for the occasion. occasion. <laughs> it's like, okay, yes, I understand that. But why have you done this? So he was meant to wear Time Ward robes the whole way through. But he couldn't move enough in them for what the scenes required, which is why he ends up in that pseudo terminator garb and but they they clearly decided that like that wasn't going to be good enough for the final confrontation so they were going to have him in this costume just an inex- there's a number of things this movie does that are just inexplicable to me that i'm like why did you do it like that they give the master just random weird 
powers that he doesn't have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the eyes are quite interesting because they remind me of clips I've seen from Survival, which is, I think, the last thing of him in. Yeah, so that that is another of these intentional hidebound continuity things that, that they are meant to be that he has the cheetah virus. That's why his eyes are like that. Right, exactly. Uh, I, I, I don't really understand what the cheetah virus is. And let me be very clear. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> um, if we fight like animals, we'll die like animals. <laughs> yeah, no, quite. But um, except he can turn into a snake, which it, it, so it still feels like, is he a snake person? Uh, no, sorry, no. He, he, it's not a snake. It's a death worm morphant. Right, so he can turn into a snake. Um, yeah, so <laughs> and then he spits like corrosive acid. Where does that come from? Because <laughs> not only sometimes also freezing stuff. Let's not forget he can just hypnotize people. Yeah, which actually in fairness is is, is a established thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and actually it works quite well. I like the manipulation he does of Chang Li. Yes, that that part is well done. But yeah, it's a little bit oversold, and that's quite good if you imagine. Like, that's an area where actually it works really well if you imagine that this is an audience that doesn't know anything about Doctor Who. Yeah, and especially if, again, we hadn't seen the first scene where he established the Doctor <laughs> Master is lying. Yes. <laughs> I mean, in particular, because McGann, when he first comes to, is really angry. Right. Like, he's not friendly to begin with at all. And he's basically stalking Grace. Yeah, no, absolutely. Is every episode of this going to be like, imagine if we made this, but good. But imagine <laughs> if we made this and it was good. Um, so specifically, I think if you had... Um, if you got the master to dial down the creepy slightly and made it genuinely ambiguous until it became clear what was going on, that might be quite interesting. The thing about the master and how the master is played is they do this thing of like, oh, he takes a while to settle into possessing Bruce. And at first he's all shambly and he can't quite, and he's doing the whole men in black Edgar suit thing. And he doesn't fully sort of become the master until he's dressing for the occasion moment. And it doesn't add anything. And it's not necessary for the plot. Why not just have him be full master all the way through? Yeah, it's just weird. Oh, of course, there's the Frankenstein ref reference, which is quite... <sighs> so many bits of this. Which like... will inform the whole of the Eighth Doctor's era. It, it really... I read on the thing, you know, his, his fingernails decaying, and the implication is the body's falling apart, but then they couldn't use uh, the makeup, so they couldn't make him look more. Yeah, decayed. the prosthetic was too Which, heavy. Which again would have been quite a cool idea, this idea that he has to. Because clearly the idea is he needs a Time Lord body to be in, and the human body's wearing out. And it's, it's, it kind of works, but, you know. Also, the act playing Chang Li, uh, it's just not been good. He's okay. Yeah, Yi Jiso has come in for a lot of criticism over the years. He does Big Finish now, not as Chang Li, because they don't have the rights because of it being a universal Fox uh, rights nightmare. Sure, yeah. But Yi Jiso and Daphne Ashbrook have both done audio dramas as other characters. He's a lot better now than he was in 1996, to be fair. Oh, no, sure. I mean, like, he's just quite young. Yeah. You know, like, 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 I, don't, I don't really hold it against him. He's just quite a green actor. It's fine, but it is a bit notable. Because the other acts are quite good. Grace is very Hollywood pretty, which I found very distracting, especially in her first scene, which is the opera. I mean, so every time I watch Grace, especially those early hospital scenes, and because it's so 90s, I'm just thinking of ER the yeah, whole time. It, it, it just has, I quite like that she's clever, that she's also a doctor, 
that's you know obviously we will do that later with Martha. I like I felt that she prefigures Martha quite a lot actually. Yes, I think so actually. Um, she's very American. I find the fact that she's so American and so the beginning of her in a dress and things it's just a bit that, that's ridiculous it's just it's just silly i think she really struggles to get from out from under that shadow the whole oh now i finally found the guy who works for me but oh he's an alien now he's leaving thing is you know we've seen it before and i don't think it works that well notably we hadn't seen that before in doctor who though yeah, yeah no for sure but i mean in film in general like, it's just... It's very cliche. It, it's a really 90s production. And I think you said to me when we were chatting about it the other day, um, it's quite feels quite dated. Like, you know, you watch some 90s stuff and it feels like, oh, this actually manages to at least feel noughties-ish. One thing I wasn't clear on is that parts of it feel very much like a kid's... Not a kid's kid's movie, but like a, you know, okay, I can imagine one James when I'm like 12, 13. Some parts of it don't at all. I mean, the more it leans into the gothic side of things, the more, like horrific it gets well let's just go back to that death what a death oh my god before the tardis materializes two people die it's in a gang war in chinatown which is like the least doctor who thing ever well you know i mean dodgy chinese gangs is something doctor who sadly have a history with i believe Oh, if only it was that knowing, but it's not. Well, indeed, no, it's not. It's not. Uh, it was around the time of Dunblane, of course. So I think for a version they broadcast in the UK, they cut out the guns and they cut out the the operating system because it, it's genuinely horrifying. It's like hard to watch, and and they they kill him on the, and, and and he dies knowing they're going to kill him. He he dies like begging them to stop because they don't understand his anatomy. Yeah, it it is properly like. It's a really traumatic... It's horrible. And then later on, he, like, pulls the stent out oh, of his oh, heart. Yeah. Oh. And and if they did that on the modern... Something like that in the modern show, there'd be some um, regeneration energy, and it would not feel like that. Yeah. This is, like, probably like, oh, what's this? <laughs> oh, oh, he's got blood on. What on earth is that? Yeah. Then there's other bits which feel like, like, like the sort of like a slightly overweight, bumbling autopsy guy watching a TV thing. Which feels like exactly like I'm watching just some kids' movie. He feels like he's wandered out as a Power Rangers movie, right? Or just or, or something of that kind, you know? Again, or Casper the Friendly Ghost, uh, which again I mean, I maintain <laughs> yeah. that this is very Casper. And it's also quite dark, actually, in fairness. But um, what a weird, what a weird, weird thing. Shall we talk about the elephant in the room? By the way. I'm half. Well, I I was going to say to you, audio drama aside, because there's you know there's a lot of the Doctor Who fandom for whom the TV show is either the primary or the only sort of version of Who that exists for them. So in a sense, you have seen the whole McGann era now. What do you make of the Eighth Doctor? You know what? I like him. I genuinely like him. I think he's quite interesting. He's he's not like a Doctor that they've had before or really since. I like the sort of slightly Edwardian fop look, but there still has some depth to him. He feels brooding, but in a kind of interesting way. You you feel like if if they'd done a show of him, he would be quite an interesting character. He has that, you know, I very much feel you with the Mary Shelley, Frankenstein's, you know, stuff. That very much feels present. I think you could do a lot of interesting stuff with him. I, I love Paul McGann in general. He's got a very expressive face. He's got a lovely gentleness to his face. Like, he's handsome, but in a slightly troubled way. And that works quite well. That's something that I picked up on as well. I think that carries over in his performance. That he does this sense of a sort of a brooding concern. Yeah, there's a sadness in his eyes. I like... Do I like? 
So it's a thing that the Doctor has. So, so he meets all these people and he clearly knows what their future's going to be. That gets annoying after a while because he does it too much. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's sort of a nice idea if you feel like, oh, this person's actually going to be famous. But it, after a while, it becomes like, is he just future psychic? Which, which is not something he is in general. So that future psychic thing, the first time you sort of see it is when he's talking to Grace and he... Like, he knows things about Grace that he shouldn't know. And that isn't like, oh, he has explicit future knowledge. It's like he's perceiving or intuiting things about her just by being in her presence. And it's not overplayed. And that's a very cool alien thing. Like, he just knows, he knows why she became a doctor because he just sort of perceives it in her and we know he's lightly psychic and that's quite cool but he just keeps he keeps getting more and more more and more so the the received wisdom is that he is an assemblage of a committee thinking of things that are doctorish so he's got an edwardian coat and a pocket watch and a cravat but i i think that's quite a superficial reading to be fair yeah i think he's got his own identity it's a nice costume design i tell you what doctor who is in the Doctor he reminds me most of, which is David Morrissey. Yes. In The Next Doctor, which I assume might even be a reference to it. But he is not dissimilar to David Morrissey's Not Doctor. That's true. I'd never really thought about that comparison before, but you're right. One thing that strikes me is that the big staking out a new identity for the Doctor is that the moment he gets his memory back, he gives Grace this almighty snog, where until then, the Doctor has been... Not even asexual, just the idea of sex isn't in Doctor Who. Right, no, exactly. And like now it's like, this is a Doctor Who <laughs> He is a Doctor Who In particular, I don't think you get David Tennant's Doctor, especially you don't get the Tenth Doctor and Rose without McGann being the Doctor that yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting because, of course, actually, these are the two controversies. So the two controversies I, I was aware of in Doctor Who fandom when I was sort of uh, first starting out was Doctor Who, Doctor Who fucks nowadays, and people don't like that very much. And it kind of started with the TV movie, and, and... the other thing, which we're not quite there yet, but we're going to get there. <laughs> it's coming. He was just going to share a secret with us. Oh, y- yes. Um... Is there anything else to say about the character of the Eighth Doctor? I like his hair. Really? It's nice and long, it's got... Because Paul yeah, McGann you know, hates that hair. Oh, well, passionately hates it. It's a wig. Um, and it um, is a wig is that Paul McGann despises. And there's a very good reason why in the Time War imagery of the Eighth Doctor, he has his own hair. But in fact, Paul McGann hates that entire costume. Passionately. Oh, oh Paul. Well, I like it and Paul McGann can be wrong. I think we're going to get... Uh, I think we're here. I'm half. Actually, actually... Before we get on to the line, before we get on to that, yeah. one last point on the the general plotting and style of the film is when you go back in time in a time travel movie, the, the cinematic key foundational beat that you don't jettison unless you're deliberately doing something really clever is you see the same events again, right? But they never leave the TARDIS. They they reverse time inside the TARDIS, but not quite. And there's no actual time travel involved in the time travel. No, no, it's 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 just bizarre. Um, it's just like they they do 
time travel, but they don't really do the time travel, and they miss the most like key beats. It's just very strange. It's just, but it's a bizarre ending. I think it's really notable and really obvious why they do this, but of course they set it they set it around the new year in 1999. I think that is worth a comment because it's easy to forget now, I think, how much the new hmm. millennium was like a thing. It just makes total sense. <laughs> There's no real reason why Midnight is important within the story. Uh, so it, it makes more sense in, in a plot where the, where the activation of the clock is somehow doing the thing. Uh, you know, it, the script needs a script doctor. Like it just needs a couple of other edits. There's a few bits. So like the bit where he walks through a wall. I quite like that bit. It's it's fine, but you don't see anything else weird kind of in that way. No, so that's it. There should have been more little bits of, oh, the universe is breaking down from then on. Right, and there wasn't. And I think it's a, it's a real problem in that it often does a few things. Like the Masked Thing now, it does a thing, but it doesn't follow through. Because then they go to the Institute and it's just a normal party. And there's no sense of like... Physics is breaking down, and it's just—it's just weird that they do that. There's also there's also the whole chase beforehand, which is preposterously. They steal the police bike at gunpoint. Let's not forget. <laughs> and then the master and Changli chase them in an ambulance, and then Changli asks the master what the master's plan is, and step one in the master's plan is. We'll wait until he gets to the party. So why are they chasing them? I mean, (laughs) yeah, this is what I mean, is that you just need someone to look at this script with a cold and critical eye and point out the bits that don't And this happens when you're writing, right? Yeah, of course. You just need someone to look at the script and go, yeah, no, this doesn't make some work. And they just didn't. They didn't have someone doing that. And it really shows. Um, and and I think to a degree it's because of, it's it's a budget thing. Like you think of low budget as just being the obvious thing that look low budget when you have low budget, which is to say you know bad effects or that kind of thing. I want, I'm just I'm just looking up the name of the poor script editor that we are dunking on mercilessly here. Well, no, it's not even the the thing is it's not even the script editor's fault. The same person could edit it and catch their stuff. It just sort of feels like at some point they were like, well, this script will do. Yeah, they didn't have enough time for more revisions. More right, than precisely. Else. It's just, it's not very, you know, the direction's not very interesting, but there's some weird stuff. and It's frustrating. The direction is the thing that there are all these glimpses of really bold ideas, and those ideas aren't in the script, like... No, no, no. Oh, they very much are not in the script. <laughs> but they just don't really commit. Mm. Yeah, there's a real... Oh, interestingly, it was the second film the director had ever filmed. Shall we talk about the line? Yeah, all right, let's talk about it. Okay, so there are two lines in this thing. One is the master looks at the doctor's eyes and goes, Aha! And the doctor says, I'm half human on my mother's side. The funny thing is when the Doctor says it... It sounds like a joke. It's a joking aside. It sounds like a joke. No, exactly. I'd forgotten that the Master had already said it. And in my head, I had always been like, oh, he's just having a joke. I'd forgotten the Master also says it. Right. Because if the Master didn't say it, you could literally write that off as a joke. I mean, you'd still have to explain why it needs a human eye to open the eye of harmony. But what? Oh, that is a different thing. That just makes no <laughs> sense, right? I mean, even if the doctor is half human... Or the whole ending just makes no... <laughs> it's just incoherent. Except, except I argue that 
in light of the Timeless Children, we might be able to salvage some of this. Oh, well, I mean... There's been numerous attempts in the extended universe to rationalise it. Oh, I'm sure. All right, so, let's go back. so as, we were just, as we were saying, so the Doctor's half-human. On his mother's side. On his mother's side. And... <sighs> he's not, though. He's not. No, exactly. Well, we know he's not now, actually. I, ha- I have just remembered, of course, that in Hellbent... Me suggests the Doctor might be the hybrid because he's half human. But again, in kind of a junky, like, I've got this hypothesis <laughs> thing that isn't like, and he's not, he's not. Let's just be clear, he's not. It's just bad. I mean, it. Uh, I think actually it's almost an example of that thing we were just talking about. The, the movie writes a check, but it just, it just, it's not even that it can't cash it. It just it just will not acknowledge you as you ask for it to be cast. <laughs> well, this is the thing. They don't realise the cheque they're writing. Yes, and actually you can see the logic in the fact that it works with human eyes. I think there's a real sense to, to not engage with the alien in Doctor Who, mm. uh, apart from the inexplicable appearance of the planet Scarrow, which makes no sense. So let's talk about this thing. They clearly don't realise the cheque that they're writing. The line about the Doctor being half human, and again, it's just the script just doesn't quite tie together. It's clearly meant to be relevant to the whole eye of harmony, human eyes yeah. opening thing, but they just sort of go, "Oh, the Doctor's half human. Interesting." And that it's really meant to just tell us that human eyes are somehow different and therefore can open the eye yeah. for some reason. I should say, as an idea in and of itself, if it was brought up in a different context, I am not fundamentally opposed to revealing that the Doctor is half-human. Right. But it's the way that it's done here, with no sense of what they're doing, and as a result, essentially no contextual scaffolding, that makes it terrible. Yes. And the issue is, it means you, you could never have that reveal, because it would be weird if the end of the time as children had been that, Jody, that the Doctor was half-human. I think the time of children expands scope... Well, is this just limits it? Has was there ever an attempt to retcon to to sort of explain what he was saying then, or what's going on with that aspect? Uh, it's been explained a bit differently in a couple of different places, but I think the basic gist of it is like this: one regeneration is half human genetically. It was a very traumatic re- regeneration. I assume that's used as some of the excuse. Could be worse. You could be the sixth Doctor. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was bad for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Hitting the face with cannons so hard. Fell <laughs> off the exercise bike. It's hard to put your finger on exactly why it is such a perfect storm of fandom outrage. And yet, even I am like, no, he's clearly, this is ridiculous. Why are you saying this? It's not like it's the first time the show has contradicted itself flagrantly. And yet, this is the only time I feel comfortable doing that. Like, there's fans going like, oh yeah, but the timeless child thing, that's just not true. It's just not. It's just, and I'm like, yeah, get over yourselves. But, but for this one thing, I feel completely justified in going, yeah, but he's not though. It gives him a special connection to Earth, which is not really explored or acted upon. Maybe, like, if you want to give them credit, and I'm not sure that I do, because I don't really think that they thought about it this much, but maybe his mother would have become important if it had become a series. 
I could see that. I could absolutely accept a version of Doctor Who where the Doctor's family become really relevant. And we'll never really have that version now. We still could, I think. It's really interesting that we've basically, in all Doctor Who, his son and daughter... We know that they canonically existed and they have just never really ever been touched upon. Yes, that's true. We know he was a parent. We know that they died. Um, the Doctor's daughter is kind of about that grief. But we don't really know what they were like. We know he had a granddaughter, obviously. Yeah. It seems like there's an interesting space there. But yeah, it's just so relevant that the, that the movie just doesn't care that this is a big deal. And I think it's because, as you say, they've got, there's all this surface stuff that's very Doctor Who... But actually, very little engages with what I think makes the character c- compelling or interesting. It's interesting that it's superficial, and yet at the same time, like the the checkboxing, is very superficial, and yet also, you know, you've got the fourth Doctor's TARDIS key. Like it's a deep cut of superficiality, which I think is a mistake that stuff that goes heavy on continuity often makes. Yes, exactly. They have lots of stuff that is irrelevant, but is deep lore, and actually can sort of don't really manage to discover the relevant stuff. In a very hipstery way, it's a bit like, oh yeah, you know enough to go back and trot that out, but you don't know what it really means, man. (laughs) No, I mean, I don't... I don't actually disagree. Um, yeah, it's just frustrating. Maybe we should give the last word to TARDIS Wiki. Okay, go on. His half-human heritage paradoxically coexisted with being a fully loomed Time Lord, and the Doctor could not remember which came first. <laughs> there you go, the canonical word on the Doctor's heritage. Nice. It's the looms and it's half-human. I mean, that sounds about right, doesn't it? That's, uh, <laughs> it's just very pointless, isn't it? I think the annoying thing is clearly, in some sense, this is a, a long pilot for a version of the show that I've got made. But it's not clear to me what the vision of that show is. It's interesting, again, to remember that this is where they ended up having previously... And I should be clear, when I say previously, I mean like a version that was never the same production as the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the weekly thing was for Amblin Entertainment. It's a a separate kettle of fish. But still, it's interesting that this is where they end up when not so long ago, the talk was a whole fresh reboot and and a story bible of fairly you know, deep foundational significance. And actually what gets made is this sort of, like it's a Doctor Who movie, like it's a movie which has Doctor Who in it, but there's not much more to it than that. It's Doctor Who, it's got the Master, there's Jelly Babies and a mention of Rassilon and it's got some Daleks very briefly just for the sake of having some Daleks. But you don't even see the Daleks. You just see Scarrow. You just hear hear them sounding like Zippy. Right, it's just... There is a different version of that opening, incidentally. Oh, really? With narration by the Master. Huh, that's quite interesting. Uh, again, imagine if the Master was narrating. It, it's weird as well because it's Paul McGann narrating, but then we have Sylvester McCoy, and it's like, what's going on? Imagine if the Master was narrating something, but it was misleading. So he was kind yeah. of lying to us, the audience. Oh, just so much lost potential. That would be a really... I'm not sure it would be the right way 
to reintroduce slash introduce Doctor Who. But it would certainly be a really interesting way to do it. Right, exactly. And the kind of thing this movie fails to do is it's neither interesting nor right. It's why the TARDIS design leaps out, because that's original. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Jeffrey Sachs had a really interesting vision. Who's that, sorry? The... The director. Right, right, okay. I suspect if he'd had more resources to work with and perhaps a more on-his-vision production crew... If you got the movie as Jeffrey Sachs envisioned it straight out of his head, Mm -hmm. it would probably be a lot more interesting. Yeah, I agree. So, conclusion on on Doctor Who the movie. I did not enjoy it. It was very watchable. And I I felt quite glad to have seen it. Genuinely really liked Paul McGann. As I said, I think the thing where this movie really, really just doesn't work for me is when it just feels like a generic American movie from the 90s. And there were just large sections of it that feel like a generic American movie from the 90s. And there's large sections of it that, well, there's, there's bits which are just fanish wank. And I don't enjoy any of those things. And there's bits where it sort of strides between the two while waving a candelabra. And I love those bits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've, that's it, exactly. They are few and far between. That That is, I think, my last word. And the, the TARDIS set is those brought to finesse. Precisely. And so to finish where we began, the set is the best thing about the movie, and it is also a synecdoche for everything good about the movie as a whole. I think, I think you're right. So in short, you don't need to watch the movie. Just look at a photo of the set. Yeah, I, I, I think if you look, look at a photo of the set alongside Paul McGann's sad puppy dog eyes there's a publicity photo of paul mcgann on that set right you need to look at that whilst playing the theme tune because i do love the movie theme tune oh that's true it's very optimistic it's quite jazzy so right at the end there's this little piano with it and it's so so pleasing and it's also it's in a weird time signature it starts with the middle eight and then goes into the familiar bit and the time signature changes during that transition. It's just musically very interesting, even for the Doctor Who theme. I think the the, the titles could be more interesting, but the music, I grant you, is good. All right, well, uh, what's next? Shall we, shall we finish with discussing what's next? Um, yeah. I think I'd like to see a Pertwee. Okay. Because in some ways I feel he's the Doctor who I have really the least consciousness of, and I've become quite interested in recently. He's weirdly old man attractive in that very dashing (laughs) way, and that is quite odd. Yeah, so what is the best Pertwee story? Um, So the the important question then is, do you want unit-era Pertwee, or Pertwee once he's got a TARDIS? Oh, good question. I think poetry once he's got a TARDIS. I think unit is going to have to be a whole other thing. So an interesting one to do might be the mutants. Because the thing is, the mutants is seen as one of the worst Doctor Who stories. Okay. But here's me who really doesn't like the Pertwee era, and it is one of the best Pertwee era stories, in my opinion. Interesting. Okay, I don't know anything about it at all. I think I think one of the nice things about this project we're doing is just throw me a story out that I have no preconceptions, and I'll just take it as I find it. Cool. Okay, well, tune in next time on Relative Digressions, where I will have watched The Mutants, Felicia will have rewatched The Mutants, and we will discuss it. I wanted to, um, after last time, end on another pun. But I can't make a pun on the title this time. It doesn't really have one. 
No. Incidentally, I, I shared that joke with my mum and dad when I spoke to them recently. And my mum laughed quite a lot, but my dad was not amused. So I think I'm only half humorous on my mother's side. <laughs> Relative Digressions is a 2020 production by Renna Robson and Felicia Barker. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions, on Facebook under Relative Digressions, or email us at relative.digressions at gmail.com. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, with additional sound from Red Sky Lullaby and Luffy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the future.